Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am amazing. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. Having a lovely time of the day. Usually when I start, you know, when we invite anybody, I talk to them about who they are, what's their story, where they come from. And one of the biggest thing that I have learned from a person from UK, actually, I'm a big, big fan of his work, so Steve Bartlett. And I learned this thing from him, like, you know, whoever we are, there's a context of our lives. So I want to understand, like, what's the earliest context you have of your life? Who is Dan behind all the successes? Who are you? How big a question. That's a mega question. I think let's um, we break it down to the things that are, I think are influential in your life. I come from a very poor, not very pleasant part of South London called Croydon, which is the equivalent of... I can't think of a Dubai equivalent. There's only nice things in Dubai. So it, just imagine like a really scratty part of a, of a town, like the, the very working class, low rent, low yeah. family income uh, part of part of London um, to a single parent, broken home, difficult, interesting childhood. While I was at school, um, started doing kind of teen modeling and young modeling for t- kids magazines and t- tween and teen magazines then got into a band, then did kids TV presenting. So I had this kind of after school, or while I was still at school, this kind of media entry into the world of stage and being on radio and being on TV, which is all super fascinating and interesting. Especially if you're a young man meeting girls and drinking beer and being naughty and doing all those things those through your formative years. And then I just didn't like much of it. So I got to about 22, 23 and left all of that world behind. And then what the hell do you do once you've gone to school and then gone into this crazy kind of entertainment world. Um, but I've always been good at fixing computers, fixing radios, fixing my mum's friends would always bring around their appliances for me to fix Hoovers and stereos and TVs. And I was always good at fixing and making and electronics and doing things. Never trained in it, but I was always, I don't know, I just always had the fascination with how things worked. So then ended up a friend of mine asked me to build a, a learning center, build a network of computers for, for for Virgin Atlantic. And I was building kind of networks and tech and computers and installing software. And this was mid-90s. So kind of early days of the internet, but super early days. And people were just thinking about emailing and just thinking about the commercial application of tech. And I loved it. And I just fell in love. And then ended up doing my engineer certification. So became a Windows engineer, an Apple engineer. I didn't really care about the platforms. I just like learning about tech. Set up a business that did it. I had an MBO with my business partner. Set up another another kind of more software, social media focused business. Um, when social media started to become a thing in the mid 2000s, sold that. And then did other weird and wonderful things. Moved to Cape Town, ran an incubator, invested in a number of startups, started angel investing, interim CEOing. And just basically messing around in startup and tech and meeting smart founders and doing a little bit of support, a little bit of consulting, a little bit of investing, just very free form, however it, however it fitted together. Never had a plan. Lived in Miami for a bit, lived in LA for a bit. And, um, and then in 2014, my mum fell ill in the UK. So I came back to the UK, looked after her, nursed her back to health. She's now fine. Well, she's still mental, but she's fine. Um, and then I met my business partner, my now business partner in 2016, 17, when we set up the VC. So then we set up Superseed. So I was still interim CEOing and, and angel investing and supporting startups and founders. But I met him and he's, he's everything that I'm not. So I'm very flighty and very feelings based and very emotional and just want to set my pants on fire and run around and break things and try things and build things and mostly fail. 
Um, and he is very structured, financial, legally minded, strategic thinking. And we are a really good union. And we were working together, helping a mutual friend with a portfolio of companies, doing various things for these startups. And we started just to realize that we should work together and we should, you know, invest together and we should build something together. And that was the root of Superseed, which is which is a B2B, 50 million pound B2B business software fund that invests in technical founders that do the transform business, that, that, that help big business do smart things with tech and software. And we're, on our, we're about to launch our third, we're about to raise for our third fund. Between us, we've invested in maybe 50 companies. I don't really care about being a venture capitalist. It's not something that I wake up and think, my goodness, VC so cool. It's mainly full of a-holes and difficult. And it's not a particularly nice vehicle for, for startups to raise through. It's, it's, there's either angel, friends, family, or other, other kind of debt and other bits. And then there's venture capital, which is this kind of very power law rules driven thing that lives over here. But anyway, so I met this incredible guy. We set up the fund about six years ago. We've invested in, multiple businesses deployed about 16 million quid now um and you know love meeting founders helping them build startups helping them sell um it's it's quite magical amazing amazing you know we we were like doing some research and we were like oh okay so you went from a small town in uk all the way to Cape Town and back in the UK. So like, what the heck happened there? But now, like, now you explain that it makes sense. Yeah, I just like trying new things, just get out there. I think the, the best thing you can do, and I'm not, I'm not young anymore, but the best thing any young person can do is travel. And then yeah. the other thing they should yeah. do, the thing about working in startup is go and get a job in sales in startup. So go and work in a youngish startup yeah. and work in sales. <laughs> Sell the sell the product or service that doesn't work. That's, that's the best, the best, I think, um, baptism of fire you can have in startup land if you're thinking about becoming a founder. Yeah. Why do you think so? Like why, why exactly? Because you, when you're selling, you're at the sharp end of the business, you're dealing with clients. And I think sales unlocks everything. Sales is existential. Sales is the answer to everything. You either get feedback or you get cash or both. Right. So you either learn about, um, so if somebody gives you money for a thing, okay, there's something in this, then you can work out what it is and how and find out where more of them are and then replicate that. And when they say, no, I don't want to buy your product or service because there's something better in the market or you haven't hit the target or there's something else going on, you get this incredible feedback loop. So either way, sales is the answer. Um, and also when you are selling, you're doing the one job that any founder in the world needs to learn. It's the first thing you need to learn. How do you sell? Which is not just, you know, putting on a shiny suit and being a grease monkey. It's about, you know, hiring. You're still selling. It's like dealing with investors. You're still selling. It's dealing with clients. You're still selling. So sales is the answer to pretty much every question in startup land. So if you're thinking about becoming a founder, that's what I would say is, you know, go and sell somebody else's stuff because you'll learn all of the the core toolkit to become a great founder. Yeah. Why, why you become an investor? Why not become a founder again? I shouldn't have done it. Um, given my time again, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I like new experiences. I don't care what they are. I don't care if they're good or bad. I just think life is about experiences. I, the, the main reason that I became a, a VC is because I didn't have enough money to invest my own cash. So the only way to invest more cash and have more meaningful stakes in fascinating businesses is to set up a fund there's no other way to do it you either have your own money and you set up a family office or you invest other people's money as a fund 
I think most people don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of my money in the fund because you have to when you start out. And there's always the GP commit. The other thing that I think that people don't know is that all investors in funds insist that there is at least a percentage of the the manager's cash in the pot because that's how you get skin in the game and you're 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 more aligned um but i just didn't have i didn't have the quantum so i didn't have that kind of money so i needed to invest other people's money <laughs> that was it okay uh i was fortunate enough to host uh, a couple like a lot of vcs actually on this podcast and one of the questions that you know one person asked is not asked like he, he was sharing something and he's a very well-known you know early stage vc in in, in new york and he mentioned like there's a lack of resources available out there for anybody who wants to start a vc firm like there's like you you can find like tons and tons of information like how you can start a start a startup like you know all kind of support systems but there's like not that much information available in terms of how to start a venture capital firm. Yep, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I mean, there's not that many people that do. I mean, there are, there are a lot more firms than there were ten years ago. I think. Yeah, now it's blowing up. Yeah, it's probably ten x. I mean, that will die. I mean, a lot a lot will pass by the wayside because of the current macroeconomic disruption, dislocation, whatever you want to call it. Um, and also LPs, our investors, LPs, don't have the appetite to VC. They've been stung a little bit. They've been sucked into the crypto nonsense or the metaverse nonsense or the Web3 nonsense or the five-minute grocery delivery nonsense, whatever the yeah. crap that was being sold. So there's a lot to wash through. Yeah. Um, but you're right. he's right. There's not, there's no, but they're, they're, but it's still, it's a very niche thing. I mean, even though we probably 10x the number of VCs over the last 10 years, yeah. as a proportion of jobs or roles in the world it's tiny 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 there are hardly any i mean in the uk i think there are 200 vc firms in the uk roughly and That's then but, but there's vc and there's vc there are vcs that aren't actually vcs there are a lot of vc firms that are actually incubators accelerators private equity CBT, other things they're not they're not venture capital in the in the classic sense yeah so if, if anybody wants to start a VC from today. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. How can they do it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> just say no. <laughs> just don't do it. Um, no, I'm being a tool. If you want to start, if you want to start a fund, be very clear as to why and be very clear as to why you're different. Now I'm not, we're not, we're a couple of middle-aged white men doing business software. We're about as common as they come. So mm -hmm. we struggle with differentiation. And I think yeah. the firms of the future will be niche firms building out and layering their onion over time. But they'll start in a very specific theme, territory, customer profile. They'll start. I think that's that's the way to do it if you want to start a venture capital firm. Yeah, that's a great answer, I think. In in my relatively smaller credit compared to yours, one thing that I've seen is like there's a, there's a term called product market fit, right? So like everybody knows about that. And then we heard a term called co-founder fit or something like that like you know you actually need to figure it out quite recently probably like six months ago or eight months ago i i heard the term like first time which is called an investor fit i think you i think you were talking about that uh, a few times ago you know on linkedin as well so in in my opinion or like the perception that i used to have from other founders they see an investor as a as checks okay half a million so dan is gonna write me a check so you know access to cash a pile or something a pile of cash or something like that what exactly is an investor fit? There is language market fit, founder market fit, co-founder, founder fit. Uh, so, and there are lots of, depending on how you want to view, view the world. Now on investor, on investor founder fit, which is why I think you probably need to um, frame it. 
there are lots of ways to answer the question. Uh, the way that I perceive the investor founder piece is that it's a marriage, it's a partnership, it's a union. So I always look at when I when I first meet founders, are we going to have a fruitful relationship? Now we don't. I don't expect us to be friends. It'd be nice, but I don't expect us to be friends. Most smart founders are what I call charmingly charmingly disagreeable and determined. So there's an opportunity for them to go off and build their business, which means they're probably not going to be that pleasant a character to be around. They're going to be working 20 hour days. They're going to be stressed, miserable up against it. And that's not really conducive to, um, you know, that there's three to four years of your life when you first start out as a founder, which are abject misery. And that's not a time for having a family or maintaining friendships. So you need to, because otherwise you lose your mental health and your mental strength and your, your mental ability, but there, you know, it's going to be a hard time. So what I look for in, in founders is this kind of this disagreeableness, this kind of determination, this, this brutality. And is there going are we going to have a fruitful union? Do we have enough of a relationship to, to make a difference together, to be greater than the sum of the parts, to, to, to create something special. And it's my job to not only invest capital, but to, open networks to create access to help them solve problems to say it's all about either me or the team or connecting in the right people who can help and am i able to do that is this a business that i am able to create or support with with some version of value whatever that might be and is there a coaching union relationship available between us as a as individuals and and as teams to be able to be greater than the sum of the parts. So I need to be able to understand what that is and have a candid conversation about whether we're a good fit or not. And it's perfectly fine if you're not a good fit, that's okay. Then maybe if, you know, I've met plenty of founders where it's not right, but I know people that it might be right for. So it's very much a two-way street. It's a relationship. It's, it's, it is a, it is a marriage of sorts. Yeah. Is there like any other popular notion in venture capital that you fundamentally disagree with the main challenge i have with venture capital is power law is the is what venture capital is based on which okay. is that we are going to i read the other day i can't remember who coined the phrase but foie gras capital where did i read it but anyway the, the notion that to to when founders become venture attractive vcs like me will stuff money down their throats because we need to deploy and you need to go and crush it and kill it. I will ram. And the whole power law is, a, is an ugly and brutal reality of venture capital, which is that I expect of the 30 companies that I'm going to invest in in this fund, um, only one or two will survive. Only one or two will return return the fund two, three, four, five X. It's, it's, um, the rest will fall by the wayside. Um and that means that you have this kind of disparity between success and failure. And it's, it, it is the nature of the beast, but there's a brutality that I often find very uncomfortable. I would much rather invest in the 30 companies and for them all to do two, three, four X and for them all to do reasonably well, but not shoot for the moon. But that's not how VC works. So the VC is, is the outliers. It is the fund returners. Um, and I've always found that uncomfortable. One personal thing I want to ask you, 
because I think we're going to get like very candid response to that. And that is, isn't venture capital feels like gambling? It's point, totally gambling. Right? That's what it is. It's intellectualized gambling. Exactly. We spend days, weeks, months cogitating over documents. It's all bullshit. Yeah. It's, um, it's not, um, it's not, it, it's a necessary part of the process, but it's just like, yeah, exactly. It's gambling. It's gambling. Yeah. I, do I believe you? I do. Do I think there are enough of them that will believe you? Yes, there are. Here's a million quid. Off you go. Go, go and kill it. It's exactly. It, it could be, and there are plenty of VC firms that do this, that there is a low level of, you know, the DD is, are you a criminal? You know, are you full of rubbish? Is there like, is there deceit baked in it? But anything above that is like fair game. And, you know, we're just going to write checks. We're going to, we're going to spray and pray. And there are models that do that. There is a VC model of just like, very quick 100k checks very quick 300k checks just throwing them in and then you know one one in 50 one in 100 might take uh, i'm not convinced i think there are other models but there is very little between friends family angel and vc there's like there's there's nothing smarter in the middle and there's there probably should be okay you know taking the other side of, of the of the same equation which is the, the founder side so i was like reading the other day one out of every six, you know, uh, startup were able to raise money in 2020 and 2021 because that was a time like everybody was deploying cash. One out of six. If VCs are looking to invest that much amount of cash, like you guys need to deploy cash, right? Yes. Why not so many deals are happening? Because when you when you have um, market shock, whatever is dictating that market shock doesn't matter. When you have that, whether it's Russia, Ukraine or COVID or financial crisis or whatever it is, the instinct for humans is to stop. <gasps> Deer in headlights, sit on their hands, panic. And that's all that happens. It's very short-lived in venture capital. And there is a lot of cash baked into VC. There was a lot of money raised in 2019, 20, 2021 that still needs to be deployed. So it's only a period of inertia. There's this shock, inertia, and then it's back to business. If you look at all of the numbers, Q4 looks like it's going to go back to pretty much 2020, 2020 deal deployments. But yeah. but obviously we're averaging out there. I mean, if you look at pre-seed and seed, the actual number of deals done is hasn't really changed. You could draw a line through the crazy 21, 22 times, and all we've done is draw the same trajectory. So nothing much has changed at pre-seed and seed. What has changed is the style of companies that are being invested in. They have to be fundamentals. As I call them fundamentals, they can't be nonsense crypto metaverse five minute grocery deliveries faster e-scooters it can't be that um it has to be fundamentals and it has to be kind of business business fundamentals layered in behind and growth is still taking a hit so there'll be there will be a period of time where growth is going to continue to be difficult so once you get beyond series a that whole risk profile has shifted um I think it will come back relatively quickly, but we've lost IPOs. Obviously, SPACs have died, so we're going to lose some of that recycling. Not that we have much of that in Europe because all of the European teams go to the States to list. It will balance out, but there will be more trade sales. There are lots of um, corporates and mid-caps who will want to acquire and grow through growth. So they'll go off and, and buy. So we're seeing a lot more... Um, kind of micro M&A, bit of M&A, bit of P going on in certain layers where, where startups are struggling and they've raised too much capital. So there are deals to be had. Um, and I think we'll see more secondary. So there'll be more VC firms selling off at a discount. So they'll lose and some of their assets will be spread. 
So that's fine. That's fine. So wherever, I guess what I'm saying is wherever there is disruption and dislocation, there is opportunity. Um, and all that's happening is that the deck chairs are being reshuffled a bit. The 2021-22 pimple has been shaved off the graphs. We're back, we're back to business as usual. And, and the chairs are being shuffled around a bit. And, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, that's healthy. We needed to stop. The nonsense and the bubble needed to stop. And it had a very short, sharp punch in the face. And it absolutely had to happen. Where do you stand on this entire Web3 crypto? It's nonsense. It's, it's theft. Crypto is theft. Did you guys invest in any of the crypto-based, crypto-backed startups? No? Crypto in 2013, 14, and got out in 18. So I realized that I got in on the ideologic pro, a kind of principle that there's a new way of, of, of distributing wealth. There's a new way of managing capital. And, 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 and what I don't think people understand is that we need inflation. So one of the, you know, one of the, purported benefits of Bitcoin, just to pick one example, was this anti-inflationary, only whatever it is, 21 million coins, 21 million coins in circulation, whatever it is. It's just nonsense. It's just not, it, you can intellectualize this stuff. And I don't know if you're a crypto investor and I, I don't want to offend you, but it's just it's just theft. It, you're, you're taking money out of money, which never ends well. So I got to 2018 and oh, hang on a minute. This isn't going to work. This isn't what I thought it was. This isn't, this isn't decent. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't, and then it just became greed, and then it became greed, and then all the coins and the ICOs, and uh, it's and it it will not end well. It will either be layered into financial systems and become properly regulated, whichever whoever whichever group of whichever entity is going to do that, whether it's the SEC or whether it's other other government departments, and the same across Europe. Or it'll be effectively banned and, and controlled and, and put underground. And I hope that it's layered in because it will lose its intrinsic value. There's, there's no greed when there is available when it's part of yep. the financial system. You're taxed and it's part is regulated. That, that, so it, it, who cares? I mean, it, it has no value. Um, so I kind of hope that it's layered in rather than rather than banned. Like China, I think China and India are banned Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining. Yeah. So yeah, so I have a very strong, I have a very strong position on crypto. And I'm only talking about the coins. The technology is very smart. The technology has lots of application, and I love it. So there's lots of cryptographic application, but coins is theft. I think so. So you, you, you know, you, you raised a very good point. Like I don't know if you if you are a crypto investor or not. So I was, uh, I don't want to say I was a crypto investor or something like that, but I was stupid enough to to do something because I think everybody. Everybody had done something. So I bought the Bitcoin, you know, and, and all of that crap. But uh, one thing that I realized that was back in 2020, actually, but, you know, when this entire thing was like on the hype. One thing that I realized is like n- nobody's willing to learn like what the heck is blockchain, like what this technology can do or like whatever they're investing in. People were like more drawn to, okay, so if I buy something today, it's going to get a thousand X, a hundred K X or something. Fear like that. and greed. Exactly. We're governed by fear and greed. Fear and greed, yeah. Like nobody gave a damn about like what what the heck is this entire thing. That was like the the whole concern was like, okay, if we deposit like 100K, you know, 10 days later, we're going to be like, I don't know, 10 million or like whatever. So uh, so I totally agree to that. And I think, um, what's your opinion on on meta, you know, this metaverse thing? Nonsense. 
So you think it's exactly the same thing? It will have it will have a fabulous gaming application. Some of the commercial applications around, uh, I don't know, being able to put on a headset and and operate from Cape Town on a on a patient in London or whatever yeah. it might be. There will be specific commercial applications. There'll be lots of gaming applications. But the thought of you and I having an interaction and living and working with no. with a headset is never going to happen. Yeah. And I was I was so surprised and disappointed when Apple released the yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever it is the 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 I big, the big I, AR thing yeah I don't yeah. even know what it's called but I was like yeah. what are you on you've been drinking too much of your Kool Aid Tim it's just this is just absolute bullshit nonsense and then you read the figs like, oh we only want to sell two hundred thousand a year or whatever which is still going to be you know a massive income and uh, but who cares. Move the needle, you know, improve society, create products that we want, build a car, build a TV. Why haven't Apple built a TV? I just, it's basically, it's just another big iPad, right? I mean, that's all we've got. We've got iPhone minis and we've got, you know, iPad pros or whatever. Just, just make a, an iPad pro pro and then we're done. Yeah, exactly like that. Um, coming back to, you now the, the whole founder, like VC or like whatever, all of that is in in your opinion because you've been on both sides of, of, the, of the spectrum like you've been a founder you've helped a lot of founders now you're investing in founders what are the biggest red flags when you meet founders for the very first time and why you think those are the red flags uh there are lots of red flags i had a call today where the founder is a solo founder which i don't care i don't care if it's solo or you i mean if you look at the numbers the the, the greatest rate of success is three founders in a team as in those that go from nothing to IPO, uh, it's, it's mostly th- three founders. I don't much care for, I don't care if it's a solo founder or a two or a three, but this chap, I would ask him a question and he would deviate and project and it, 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 it just sounded deluded. It sounded, it sounded like, you know, if you don't have the answer to a question, you say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. This is what I think. This is my sense of it, but I don't know. And I, can I come back to you on that? And I would go absolutely yes. So that's a red flag. I mean, the, let me flip the question around. Is, is what what do I look for that I find impressive that that is this this kind of this powerhouse piece? Okay. Because there are so many red flags. But the, okay. the powerhouse piece, this charmingly disagreeable and determined piece, is comes back to this sales piece. So if I'm on a call with a founder or a founding team, and I get a sense that they've they've got it. This is what I say to my founders when I when I when they're going on for their subsequent raises. Now half the half the people I've invested in have gone on to follow on rounds, so that's a that's a very high percentage. And all I say to them is, all you've got to do is make the investor feel like you've got this. That's it. It doesn't matter what you say, what you present, how you're. You just got it. You've got to effectively. F- make the room feel confident. Make the room feel like it's okay. Don't worry, I got this. We're going to make this happen. That's it. That's the essence of it. So it does come down to um, questioning that some of the smartest founders I work with are always asking questions, always filling the cup, always always intellectually stimulated. They never quite switch off. Like, what is that? Who do you know? How does that work? What do I do here? And it's not that they think that I have all the answers. It's they're just constantly asking multiple people that they trust and then learning to be the best filter in the world. So I'm, I'm always looking out for could I put you in a room with somebody from Sequoia or Axel or Benchmark? Or can I put you in a room like the follow-on? Can I put you in a room with any 
C-suite enterprise sales team, or any any of the C-suite that's going to that's going to potentially buy your product, and how would you fare? Can I put you in a room with any of our partners or, or so investors? potential customers, potential partners. Could I put you in a room and how would you fare? Could you hold your own? Could you hold court? Could you share stories? Could you sell the vision? Um, so they're all the, they're all the things that I'm always looking for. And it, it's everything kind of in the early, in the later stages is spreadsheets, right? And I don't deal in yeah. that world, but I don't know that well. But in the early stages, it's all about this narrative and this ability to sell and be compelling and be attractive. Can you build a team? Can you sell to a client? Can you sell to an investor? That's that's the that's all you need to be able to do in early stage. And I think not many founders check in that criteria. Like there's like not many. No, it's it's, very, it's a very very low percentage. But yeah. what I say to all founders is it can be learned. All of this stuff that I ask of people and I ask of myself because I'm out raising, I'm out selling, I'm out building a team. These skills can be learned by anybody. You need, you need a little bit of self awareness, a little bit of ego. And a little bit of kind of effort, I'm going to go for attitude, and I don't care what anyone else says. So there are, there are these fundamental staples that I think you kind of bring the baseline of, but then all of these skill behavior can be learned. Okay, that, that, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, what's the best investment that you have made and the worst one? And why, you know, what did you learn from both of them Four. as a VC? Yeah. Well, 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 well. Um, my funds are very young. So I started venture capital investing in 2018, like mid 18. And we started fairly slowly with relatively small checks, two, three, 400 K checks. But our first fund was our demo fund, our learning fund. We did 18 investment. Ah, got it. Understand our model, understand our thesis, understand what we stand for. Okay. That took, that took a couple of years just to hone that. So there was lots of experimentation. Um, I wouldn't put any of them in the bucket of the worst because I don't, I don't buy into that notion of the worst. There are some, who knows which ones will succeed. We're still very young, so who knows what will happen. The key learnings are trust your gut. So, so when you're working with a fan who's like, there's something not quite right about this. And I've done this twice where I've not followed my gut feeling and both have borne fruit. The other side is that I should, I should have just not done that deal. And on the on the other side, the, I, there's a couple of founders that I, I just I just adore. They just you know, I know you're not allowed favorite children and stuff, but I just they're just they're just incredible humans who they're just going to kill it. They're going to go out and and it doesn't matter whether this vehicle works for them. Obviously, I hope it does because it's the one that I invested in. But they're gonna they're they're gonna be just fine. Whether it's this vehicle or the next, they're gonna be just fine. What's the company? What's the, what's the company you're talking about? I can't say that. I would be in trouble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I don't have favorite children, but they they know who they are. And it's there's, there's a small handful that's going, this is just, you are just ridiculously impressive people doing impressive things. And I learn. I learn from all of the founders that I work with. That's part of the joys of being a VC is that I get to learn about these weird and wonderful topics like intraday bank liquidity, edge computing, supply yeah. chain demand forecasting i get to learn all these topics that i would never be exposed to in the normal yeah. world and meet people that are experts in those domains that are just just unbelievably smart and it's it's a privilege one thing that comes to mind is um and this is again scratching a personal itch because you know i started out in in products like early on my career was around products like that's how i that's all that i knew um how likely is a vc fund to invest in a copycat 
sort of a product. Well, I some. I mean, there are some models that are based on it. The old Rocket Internet model was based on it. I think they were the first big play to just effectively yeah, yeah. look at the states, rip it off, launch it in Germany UK, or yeah, in, in the Europe Egypt or, something. or wherever. And I think that's just hateful. I, that's just hateful shit. That's the the thing that inspires me about venture capital startup is the reinvention it's we are there's no such thing necessarily as a new idea but we are constantly we are pure innovation we are going to be the net creators of jobs and opportunities in the future so the startups that are coming through that i value and rate and obviously that i invest in on the b2b side are the ones that are transforming the old they're they're finding new ways to solve problems Anything that is just replicant stuff is just go and make sandwiches and go and do something else. That's just hateful. That's just that's just opportunistic nastiness. Yeah. I have I'm very and a very emotional creature. I have no time for that stuff. Some people can make lots of money on it. Uh, I don't. I just just don't just don't do it. It's just we we have a this will sound awful and ridiculous, but we have an we have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to use money to change the world for the better. So there are lots of people that are using money just to be just making money and, and be opportunistic. And the, we but we have an opportunity now to 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 take take the capital that we have and invest it in in people and ideas that are going to absolutely transform how the world works. And that's that's what gets me out of bed, and that's that's the most important thing. It's not money for its own sake, because there's that's just misery. But to, to actually try something new and build something new and change a way that something is done, that's that's how we solve climate change. That's how we solve all the DEI challenges. It's if we're constantly looking for things that need fixing and reinventing and and circulating in the, in that way. Yeah, one company that pops up. And uh, quite recently, you know, something happened. So I just want to pick your opinion on that. What do you think of WeWork? Of all the crap that's been hap- that, that's happened, yeah. It's, if you said to somebody, look, uh, I'm going to get my investors to subsidize a really nice office for you so that you pay 20, 30, 40, 50%, you're going to say yes. So that's it. There is no, I mean, it's lovely that Ubers and WeWorks and there's a whole plethora of these kinds of businesses came through because, well, actually Uber's a bit, nastier because they they effectively crushed lots of mom and pop shops and and taxi ranks and 100 so there there and there's lots of horror stories of of uber drivers committing suicide because they couldn't make the salaries that they were promised and and i know that there are edge cases in anything in any transformation but there's some horrific stuff going on there so to crush a market and discount on investor capital and then start putting your prices up I understand the strategy intellectually. I just cannot reconcile that. I think it's I think it's massively unpleasant. On the Uber side, what we're left with is the ability to walk into any city in the world and, and reliably find a taxi. Now that is quite an incredible feat. So I'm not saying it's always one. It's not these things are never purely one sided. We work. Um, there are going to be a lot of landlords in cities that are going to lose a lot of money at a time when commercial property and commercial landlords are already under it because of COVID and people aren't, you know, hybrid working, aren't going back to the office. So I don't massively feel sorry for most of these people because most of them are mega wealthy and they'll be fine. They, you know, they're not going to be eating ramen noodles. But at the same time, it just feels wasteful to. I love the innovation 
and and I, I I've had three WeWork offices in in my life so far, and I love the offices; they're beautiful and it's lovely. Yeah. Um, but I it just it goes back to my other point. It's just it's just it's a bit of a shame that it's just kind of we've wasted billions of dollars on something that's not really all that meaningful. Yeah. Nice, loved it. Thank you, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mayoshi. Thank you, thank you, thank you. By the way. Yeah. Okay. My follow-up question. Yeah, my follow-up question on that was like, why waste that much amount of money? Well, what's a waste? I mean, if you think about the 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 the, the tendrils that were that were released into the commercial world, so there would have been people that were building these offices. There would have been landlords that were renting these offices. There would have been employment for people to come in and work these and operate these offices. There was this whole community push. I know it went a bit too far with the the indoor surf school and whatever other nonsense Adam Neumann was doing, but yeah, that, that's egomaniacs for you. That's narcissistic psychopaths for you. That's that's part of our world in venture capital and startup founding. That's psychopathy is a big part of it, and we have that's. I think the world would be a worse place without them. <laughs> okay, a lot of things wouldn't happen, you know, without some of the psychopaths that are out there. I mean, look at Donald Trump. But anyway, that's 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 not let's not get into that. But I forgot what you asked me now. The, the question has just left me. I got, I got stuck on Donald Trump. <laughs> where, where, he's a, he's, where, he's, where he's a character. Where, yeah. The, yeah, the, the question was uh, a lot of money that you know that was invested oh, like, that went to waste. Yeah, yeah so it, it was it, a waste. It didn't get it didn't get wasted. And again, the, those that were investing and you know there were a lot of lot of funds that will not not do well, and a lot of people that probably shouldn't do well that have done extremely well. I put Adam Neumann in that bank as well. He's you know how billions did he walk away with by for being fired? Yeah, um, one point seven. It's just it's just it's just a bit of a joke that people didn't look at the fundamentals. This this can never work. This business can never work. It's always never. It's always you know kick the can. The never never. It's okay. Like with Uber. Oh, when we have flying taxis, we'll make money. It's like it ain't gonna happen. When yeah. we have self driving cars, we're gonna we're gonna make money. That's never gonna happen either. So it's that whole kick the can never never attitude. I, I find offensive in, in VC specifically. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> okay. One last question that I personally want to ask you before we get into that audience you know segment sort of a thing yeah what's the difference between going to a shark tank or or dragon's den in in the uk or pitching to a vc what's the (laughs) difference between all these things no there's chalk and cheese it's like uh, (laughs) it's cars and airplanes they're not shark tank is tv dragon's den is just tv there is nothing there there are no takeaways in fact founders shouldn't watch that shit you should run for the hills. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be investing in economies that we don't like, and that's just entertainment. That's just television. So there is no comparison. Okay. So I, there, there is no answer to that question. I mean, pitching to a VC is is you know having a vision, being able to sell that vision, and and having customers that care about your vision and that you can take on a journey with you, and then investors and team members and whatever. Shark Tank is in Dragon's Den is just shit TV. <laughs> Okay, but a lot of people, that, you know, for, especially from founder standpoint, they do, you know, market that thing like, okay, we went to Shark Tank, raised that much amount of money, becomes a part, becomes a part of our like marketing gimmick or whatever you want to call it. Oh, as seen on as seen on Shark Tank, as seen on Dragon's Den or something. If that works for you, then all power to you. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. All right, so um, as I mentioned, you know, before before the before the chat. So we have this this audience and people are kind enough to submit some questions. So there's like only a hand pick of these. And and again, like there's a ton of those, but I think we consolidated all of them in, into these ones. So uh, it, 
and they're like not in any particular order, just like randomly. So what are the most overlooked terms in a term sheet that a founders should pay more attention to? That's the first one. There are a small handful of terms that you need to be mindful of, and most people will know them. I think the the challenge that you have really is getting a good lawyer and understanding the terms that will affect the terms. So you will negotiate all kinds of reverse vesting, preemption. This there'll be a whole bunch of stuff that is there to protect the business stuff that is there to protect you as the founding team, stuff that is there to protect the investors. There is, There are no hard and fast rules. There are some things that look particularly um, ugly, but are probably potentially quite meaningful and required for you at this stage of business. The only thing that you must do is whatever terms and whatever valuation and whatever you raise, whatever, whatever, the, whatever that is, Remember two things. One is you only refer to these documents in times of trouble, right? So, so most contracts are only useful when the shit's hitting the fan. Everything else is, is negotiable or workoutable because, you, you know, things are going well. So of course you need them. And of course they're very important. They're a very important backstop. But all you really want to do is be using these terms to set up the next fundraise. So you must make sure, for example, if you're, if, use one example, a cap table, if you own less than 50% as the founding team of your own business at Series A, you have a problem. Now it's a solvable problem. You can build an options pool and you can reverse vest and then you can give yourself some more of the options. So you can, you can shuffle. It's problematic, but you have to constantly think, well, what do we need to do to get this term sheet these terms right so that we are so that we're on the right trajectory to build a venture scale business at a series a series b and beyond there are there tend to be ways to to unmess <laughs> i was going to use a, a stronger word there but you mustn't um you must always just keep in mind to set up set up one one round ahead but the actual to pick up on any specific i mean that Double dipping, so you've got to watch out. You know how the how the how the how each investor is is rewarded, and to make sure that there are no um, there are no clauses. You know you're not paying you know exorbitant fees, or you're not paying annual fees, and there's nothing in there that is giving anyone you know any kind of the, the double dip preps. I think is pretty is particularly pernicious. Um, but there's nothing in there. There are certain things that you might want because it enables other aspects of the deal to go ahead. So negotiate, understand every single line item, get the lawyer to work out the terms that are going to affect the terms. Um, understand that you will lose. I mean, there is an element in the earliest stages of, of feeling like you're losing control of your own business. It feel it's not, that's not the reality because everybody is aligned for success here. You no, know, we are completely aligned that you, we're investing in you because we believe in you to succeed. I mean, that's that's the basis of the investment. It's not to scupper you by term. There are often protective rights in there in favor of early VCs that can be sometimes a little bit ugly. Double double dip prefs is probably is probably the most pernicious. Okay, okay, I appreciate it. Um, can you take us through your due diligence process at like Supersede? What are like some of the red flags that can immediately halt the the whole investment opportunity? The due diligence is broken down for us into two main buckets. One is what we call commercial diligence. Do customers care? So we'll do a whole bunch of due diligence 
on almost on behalf of customers and new customers and potential customers, do they care? The other side of due diligence is pretty much box checking. Are you a criminal? Has what you told me, is it baked in lies? Does it make sense? Are you, do you really have these contract values? Is there really this much cash in bank? Is there, so they're, they're just very, very, and there's maybe 20 or 30 just tick boxes, um, sending in, you know, passports or proof of ID. I mean, it's, it's properly administrative checkbox. So for us, it's, it's, you know, the commercial diligence, which is, you know, do customers care? And, and we're speaking to existing customers, we're speaking to potential customers, and we're doing that, the kind of the, the customer viewpoint as part of our due diligence. And the other is just a checkboxing exercise. What you need to do is two things. One is to have a list of, um, get the list from any VC of all of their DD items and just put them into a data room and protect it. Okay. Don't send that to anybody and get them all in the data yeah. room. Yeah. Protect them all, have everything all very clearly labeled, have a spreadsheet noting and linking to where everything is, or it could be in a Notion database or whatever it is. And the other thing to do is to have an FAQ. So all of the stupid questions that investors ask you, collect them all and have that as part of your DD. So have that as part of your header. It's part of your pitching, but have it as part of your DD material. All of those stupid questions that people like me ask list them all and answer them all in, in an FAQ format. Okay. And then the, the other part was, what are some of the red flags that can immediately hold the entire investment process? If customers don't care. For me, the only thing I care about, assuming there are no red lines in the in the hygiene stuff, so you, you, are, you aren't a criminal, um, the rest of it is if we cannot get any any customer pull or any, any form of customer draw, and we've only had this once, but in in process at almost at DD. So we just couldn't get anyone. We believed in it intellectually. It made sense. We just couldn't get customers to care. So um, that's that's the main thing. That's that, that's not really a red flag. I mean, that's something that's just, that's just a data point. Then you go back and okay, we need to tweak or pivot. That's okay. There's still there, invariably there's still something in that area to solve because you know it. You've lived it. So you can see the thing. You see. But then you've got to work out how you approach it. Or make, so it's either a tweak of strategy or it's a pivot into a into a whole new way of solving that problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's helpful. So once you have invested in a company, how hands-on are you typically? Like, you know, do you prefer founders to reach out like proactively? As much as much as founders need. So it's not it's not our business. We're not here to run the business. We're not here to get operational. Okay. But for hiring, most founders screw up hiring senior hires. So we help. We very much help with that. We have. Uh, uh, an internal head of talent. We very much help with the financial, the board packs or the financial structuring. So it's another thing that founders don't have the skill set for, the time for, or the inclination for. So we will help build the financial model and then and then effectively framework the financial model so that everything for management meetings and everything for board meetings is already templated and done. So that's something we can take off the table. So hiring financial modeling and also what we call like the startup os or startup id which is the ability to once you've raised it when you've got a couple of million quid in the bank you you do a number of stupid things you'll hire the wrong people which we ho hope to solve you'll start spending money on you know that you'll, you'll start deviating off yeah you know because you can you can experiment too much and you can try too many things so we we go back to this startup os piece which is why you get out of bed? Where are you going? What's the next thing that you need to achieve? How do you communicate that to the market? And that's all mission, vision, position. Mm -hmm. It's all oh, those yeah. kinds of aspects. So we workshop those things with founders. But when it's the right time and when it's required, um, 
It's our job to either put things in the way and get things done or to take things out of the way. That's our job on the value piece. But really, we're investing in people because they're amazing and they're going to go and kill the world. Do you, do you uh, because you have like internal talent, is the idea subconsciously is to hire somebody and put it in, in, in the company so you can, you know, keep every single thing in structure? Or is it just like, no, if, if you need it, we can help you. If you don't, it tends can... to be the, the, the first hires that we tend to do is as, as startups move into kind of quite a drawn product market fit mode is to then, is then hiring a really powerful head of sales who can then transition from founder sales to a systemized sales. So go to market strategy and they tend to then understand, work with the founding team or the founder or the CEO, bottle them and then create a system around that what works because the founding team have probably done this for a couple of years and worked out what's good, bad and ugly. And then they can turn that into a proper go-to-market playbook. So that is, it's not about, it's not about anything to do with control or, or us being in any way dictatorial. At the right time, we need to systemize this function. And we start with sales because that's what we're all about. Um, and that tends to be a CRO or a head of sales or whatever you want to call them, who then un or bottles founder sales or unbottles it, depending on which way you look at it, and then creates the system and the playbook. And that's, I think, is really powerful. And it's proven. I mean, it's proven to be powerful. Had a question around control, but I think you already answered that. So, like, why, like, why most founders have this notion that you know VCs want to control the whole business? Why is that like that a widespread sort of a notion out there? Conversation comes up a lot. At, um, uh, uh, for example, when you reverse vest, so when you when you when you take a funding round, you'll probably have to. Let's say you own eighty percent of the business, and you're a, you've raised a pre-seed, you own eighty percent of the business, you've given twenty percent away at the previous round you will have to probably drop whatever to 50% ownership and then revest because if we're giving you a couple of million quid, there's almost a payment for that, which is, you know, we need you to kind of think back a step, almost have reskinned in the game to then earn, earn your, your full ownership in the business. Now that feels really kind of sucky controlling. It's like almost how dare you. But if you think about it from the other side of the desk, it's like, well, if I give you two million quid and then you decide to sell yourself the business for a pound and you've got two million quid in the bank and and there's no way of me having any exercising any control over I mean you so yes there's a there's a trust piece, but we also there has to be some weights, measures, controls in there that will mm -hmm. that will stop you from being a dick. Because you can. I've seen companies sold to their cousin for a quid and then they milk all the money out and they still own eighty percent of the business, right? Yeah. yeah so there, exactly. there are there are mechanics in there that can sometimes feel heavy handed, mm -hmm. but they are that's that that's the price of taking a substantial chunk of venture capital. And you know, the other thing that I think many founders don't appreciate is that many founders by the time they either trade sale or IPO own less than five, ten, yep. three percent of their own business. It's a really good question. I mean, in, in some instances, when all of when they've got it wrong and they've taken too long, and the and the the risk has changed, and other people have picked up that risk profile, yeah. I mean, sometimes having one percent of a of a billion dollar business is much more than you would ever have made had you bootstrapped. Sometimes it's too heavy handed, and sometimes there are sometimes there's been too many funding rounds. Sometimes the the cap table has been too screwed, and there's just there's just no way out of it. And they almost become figureheads in their own business. It's sometimes that's how it rolls. It's, is it pleasant? No, venture capital is not nice.
Exactly. But it's, it's, an, it's a necessity. One thing that comes to my mind, because you mentioned the word bootstrap, and I happen to, you know, interview a lot of people who are like, you know, they build a bootstrap business and manage to exit that and whatever. Why is there a sense of a pride in all the bootstrap founders? Is it pride? Is it? Is it? I don't know. Like, but there's some, some sort of a cockiness out there. I'm going to do it on my own. Um, I think there is something, I mean, there's something mega impressive if you are going to build your business on a bit of debt, a bit of friends and family, a bit of client money, and you're going to build it and you're going to hustle and you're going to build it and you're going to sell that. I think you should, you absolutely have the right to feel incredibly proud of and for, I think, I think, I think, I think that's just, um, if you do want to get on the venture capital track and you are ready to pour venture capital fuel on the fire and you want to build a glo- global business, then, then you, then you take a different track and that's, exactly. and it's just, it's just horses for courses. Right. So, um, and I think, I think there's no better or worse. It's your personal choice. It's not a natural, there is no natural progression from friends and family, angels, venture capital. That's not, it's not a linear path. It's yeah. a choice. It's a lifestyle choice, which doesn't have to be small. You can have yeah. extremely substantial lifestyle businesses, or it's a global business and it's venture scale. Mm-hmm. There's not. There's very little in between. You either you yeah. either gonna either bootstrap or or debt and small funding rounds and build and build and build, or you're gonna go screw it. I'm gonna go global and we're gonna take this massive and I'm gonna raise and as from as impressive a VC as I can find and the most amount of capital that I need to achieve my objective. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The next one is, is, is kind of a funny one. When you decide not to invest in a startup, do you generally tell them why? What are the most common reason of rejection anyway? Um, I try to always be honest. It's, it's a very strong part of my personal value set. Sometimes I can't be honest with founders because partly I don't feel like it's my place. What the hell do I know? Partly, I want to not open floodgates which are unnecessary or cause unnecessary distress or what, you know, so what it doesn't matter. Go, you know, everyone will have a different opinion. So the next VC will think you're wonderful and I think you're an asshole. It doesn't matter. So, so it's kind of like partly it's not my place and, and partly I don't want to open, I don't want to open that floodgate or that, that conversation path. But that mostly I would say, 90% of the time, I am very direct and very honest, but caveated with it's just my opinion. And I would say most of the time that I don't invest is because of the founders. So that's a really hard conversation to have. It's like sometimes when, it, when we're mid-process, this mm-hmm. isn't right because you're the problem. That's that's a really hard conversation to have. I tend mm-hmm. to I tend to um, change the language set around it. I don't make it so accusational. It's more a case, I don't buy it. I don't buy this. I don't buy this. What I'm really saying is, is you. And if you don't, if you don't know that, and you you, you can't hear that, then that's even doubly more, doubly more the problem. Yeah. How do you resolve that? In case you don't like the founder, like it's not a case of liking. No, 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 no. no. It's not about liking or disliking. It's about I don't buy you. I don't oh, okay. buy that you as a person, as a as a leader of, of the company or something. It's all about the team. You know, the founding team have to be able to, and it's the hardest job on the planet to to create a new way of solving a problem, and not only to understand the content, but to build a business around the content. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest job on the planet, and you're starting from nothing, back of a napkin, and the conversation in the pub, and then you you've got to build the first thing and then you've got to hire the first boy or girl and then you've got to sell the first client it's 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 ridiculously hard right it's the hardest the hardest thing but if you 
are if it's not going to be a venture scale business and or I don't believe that you can do it, I think there's something, there's a version of the truth that is always available. Okay. You did. Okay. All right. So um, what's an ideal pitch deck for you and how do you evaluate pitch decks in general? Like what's the attention span? Do you spend like three seconds looking at the pitch deck or do you spend like 30 minutes? I doubt that, but yeah. Um, I think everyone's different personally. And there are lots of pitching tools. I hate them. I want a really simple, if it's cold, I want a really simple, no more than 10 slides, visually visually appealing, narrative-driven pitch deck. So I want to go, and I've written a, a long post on this. I've deconstructed most of the successful pitch decks that I could find and then, and then codified what, what element, content, and what the context of the slide should be. And there's 10 slides. So... Okay. Um, and it's all the stuff that you know. Uh, it doesn't have to be called whatever, problem, mm -hmm. solution, team, financials, tracks. It doesn't have to be called those stupid titles. Get get creative. Don't, don't be boring. But at the same time, a very simple, flat PDF, no more than 10 slides. I will spend about 10 seconds per slide. And I want mm -hmm. to feel a narrative of, this is interesting. These people are interesting. They're solving an interesting problem. I want to just feel there's something in it. I don't need to know all the details. You don't need to drop your underwear. I don't need to. I, I don't care about the mechanics. I care about you know who are you, why do you exist, and why are you solving this problem? It's like it's like if I can buy into this trend that you're leaning into, this problem that you're solving, this community that you're serving and feel like it's a venture scale opportunity and you're the team to build it, I'll pick up the phone or we'll have another meeting or we'll go into a, a, more materials. But it's, um, it's very simple. Cover all the major food groups, break some of the rules to be interesting, make it visually appealing. It doesn't have to be that beautiful. It doesn't have to be designed by Van Gogh, but it needs to be something that kind of, I'm not kind of squinting and trying to decipher. Don't cognitively overload me. Uh, and it's it's a flat PDF, no more than ten slides. If it's cold, if it's warm, you might you you might entertain a few more. But generally, you know, fewer than ten slides, flat PDF attached to an email, a couple of teaser bullets. Looks like we're looks like we're a fit for your portfolio. Looks like we really fit your thesis. Here's why I want you to invest in us: five key bullets of your key metrics, and then a teaser pitch deck. Okay, a follow up on on, on that is how much of a personal relationships slash warm intros really influence your investment decisions? They don't. They don't. What they tend they to do is, is open the door, but this, the thing still needs to be on thesis, impressive. Say, you you might give it a bit more time because you feel a respect for the person that referred you, but you, you're not going to... Um, if it's not if it's not right, it's not right. And it, I'm, I would... There are stories of if you invest in my team, I'll invest in your team across VC. And there, okay. is, there is a little bit of that. I've never experienced that, but I've been told that that goes on. I don't buy it. And I especially don't buy it when the chips are down. Right now, you know, the, the venture capital market is is not that buoyant. And I don't I don't think anyone's going to play those stupid games right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing, you know, I just, just personally want to ask is how common is it for uh, VC to kick out the founder when the, the growth actually stalls? It's not. I mean, this, these are the serious minorities. I mean, if, I mean, founders typically make shitty CEOs. Typically, if you're a great founder, you're not going to be a great CEO. It's a different skill set. One is spinning plates, magic, sales, you know, 
pants on fire and the other is systems processes spreadsheets they're very different skill sets i mean if you look at i don't know google you look at larry page so they brought in what um eric schmidt super early to run the business i mean there are lots of stories i mean zuckerberg doesn't run his own business there are lots of stories of very impressive founders the creative minds bringing in really powerful operators to actually run the business I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's um, as long as you have as long as you have the awareness, it doesn't happen often. As long as you have the self aware, you have the, you need to have the ego to go for it. But you have the self awareness to go. This isn't my skill set. I need to functionally bring in somebody to replace this thing that I'm not very good at, or to bolster this thing that I think with the business needs. Um, but the I think the only time that founders get replaced is when mm. they're dickheads. They're genuine. They're genuine because the board don't want to get involved. The board don't want to replace you. The board do. There is no incentive ever for anybody at board or as an investor to replace you. It's the worst thing. It's the worst thing. It's so disruptive. It's such a time sucker. You will invariably get it wrong. It invariably doesn't work. So it's it's the it's the path of last resort. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So um, another thing is. Uh, you know, does a startup that's failing reflect poorly on a VC that's invested in them? So you invest in like 30 of the companies and God, God forbid, and like three of them are like horribly wrong. I expect of the 30 companies that I invest in, I expect 25 to, I expect 15 to flat fail. Okay. Like just, just go like zero. Uh, 15 will flat fail. Um, I would expect 10 to return some version of capital. A one X, a one point two X, a two X, a three X, a something X, a sub three X something, and I would expect two, three, four, five to be significant operators, and one or two hopefully to be fund returners. Suppose you know of those fifteen companies, of those you know companies in the founding team, they they come up with another idea, they have another you know breakthrough or something like that. Will you invest in them again? Yeah, absolutely. If they, I don't, I invest in people. So sometimes the vehicle isn't right. Sometimes the vehicle needs to be thrown away or I would, or I, yeah, I mean, I, we just invested in a, in a, in a, a founder who's found another co-founder who was one of the earliest founding teams of another startup that we invested in. I, I absolutely, I, I, every day of the week. I mean, there are lots of stats around second time founders outperforming. And there are there are firms that will only invest in second time founders with a minimum of a ten dollar exit, a ten million dollar exit. So that's their strategy. They'll do this thesis, but only only second time founders that have had a had a semi decent, not too decent because you become lazy, but a semi decent outcome. If the startup pivots, how often do you guys support it? I will I will support the founding team ad infinitum. There's okay. no there's no rule. So if if the pivot like. Like whatever. Listen, if they're pivoting every week because they're being unfocused and lazy and stupid, I'll have serious words. But I mean, that never, that never happens. That's never happened to me. That that's a that's not common. What what tends to happen is that after a major funding round, everything gets a bit loosey goosey, and then you need to have some pretty serious words to get back on track because egos are strong yeah. and you know they've got 10 million quid in the bank or whatever it might be and they think they've got it they think they've worked it it's like nah sunshine i mean even post series c 50 percent of startups fail to return capital and post series c you look like a substantial business you will have hundreds of employees you will have raised hundreds of millions of dollars so you will look like 
you've got it. You'll look like you know what you're doing. Even those guys and girls half the time fail to return capital. Do you think there's a, there's a sense of ego slash pride, you know, cockiness or something like that in, in founders who raise a lot of big rounds? Like, oh, I just, you know, raised 50 million bucks or something like that, right? Of course. I mean, the, but, the, but the irony here is you've, just got a, you've got a bucket load of debt. Oh, that's still not, it's, it's not. Yeah. But you, you basically you you've managed to get back credit card. Who gives a toss? You've done nothing. I mean, it's more responsibility than ever before. Yeah, right? it's awful. It's awful yeah. way. It's a horrible yeah. way. But yeah, but you need to have an ego the size of a planet to handle that. It's like, yeah, I've got this. I can do this. Yeah. I've got a hundred million quid in the bank. I'm gonna go and kill the world. Is that that's that's the mentality, that's the attitude. Yeah. So, so one other thing that I do on the podcast is started recently. I consider myself as a lifelong learner. So I ask everybody one question that I personally want to learn from them. So the one thing that I want to learn from you is, uh, and this is, you know, the, the context of this question is, so I see you building this sort of a community brand sort of a stuff on, on LinkedIn. Like you talk about things that most people don't want to talk about, right? Or like, you know, bringing that reality check behind, behind those things. So I want to ask you, how important is it for a founder to build his personal brand? And does that actually help in fundraising or not? I, I can answer this both ways. One way is focus, get off all social media, delete social media and focus on building a business. And the other way, and there's, I could go into more of that side of the, that hand, if you like, that side of the fence. The other side of the fence is if you have a credible digital profile, you will be able to hire more easily, fundraise more easily, sell clients more easily. But it's a double-edged sword and it takes a lot of time. And I write, when I started writing, it's because my partner said that we need to build a personal brand, you know, and I was like, oh God, another <laughs> middle-aged white man VC talking about stuff. So nothing will fill me more with dread than putting myself out there under that guise. But actually what I realized is that I love it and I love learning and sharing and I'm not learning and sharing to teach. I'm learning and sharing to learn more because yeah. the, the very process of writing. And I don't know if you find this with, with, with building your podcast audience, the very process of thinking about the topic and articulating it in different ways, embeds mm -hmm. it in your brain in a whole new way. And sometimes Absolutely. Like you're writing things and I, I didn't know I thought that I didn't yeah. know that that was the, yeah. the depth of the, that, topic or whatever it might be so i that was about it took me about a year and oh i'm writing to learn not to teach but to me it was about building up earlier building a brand and having an opinion and being out there's ah it make me feel a bit sick but it's um so should founders be doing that uh i think on balance no they should be focusing on business and they should they should probably delete all social media and focus on the weighty task of of building a business but there are caveats in there okay so uh then appreciate it we do have this small ritual on the podcast and what we do is we ask all our guests a question for our next guest without telling or knowing who the next guest is going to be so we have a question for you and obviously i'm going to take a question for our next guest the question that we have for you is if you were to go back in time and invest in a business that you think now I've done, a, you know, they've managed to get to a great success height, like whatever. If you can go back and invest in one business, what would that be? That you think any, you missed any, the any opportunity. business in the world? No, the, the one that comes to you and you kind of missed that opportunity to invest in them. Oh, well, passing on the Beatles. I've not had one. I've been asked this before. I've not had a. Uh, I've not had a Beatles moment yet. Maybe it's because I haven't been investing for long enough, but I've not had a Beatles moment. Or maybe I, I, I don't see the world that way, but there is one startup 
where the founding team, or the founder really, uh, didn't take our money because they they got they got a a ridiculously overvalued offer from an incredibly impressive VC. So of course, I mean, I was like, I can't even compete with that. I mean, a the brand you need to get that on the cap table. I totally understand that, and the valuation they've given you at the stage of that is just nuts. So I can't compete. And regardless of not being able to compete financially, you should absolutely get that brand on your cap table. And then they wanted us to come in, but not lead. As I can't, I can't not lead. I can co-lead or lead, but I can't not lead the rounds because we've tried that before and it just doesn't work for our, mm-hmm. for our model. It just doesn't work. And okay. that's a bigger topic, but we still stay in touch. He's asked me to be his coach. He's asked me to be an angel. We still, we stay in touch. We speak often. And I, that's all I care about. Of course, I would have liked to have been the investor, but it was, I never put that in the, the Beatles that got away. I, you know, I, you, you didn't sign, you didn't sign Elvis Presley or whatever the, that phrase is. So I don't have one yet. Okay, I, ask me next year. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, what, one one follow that that comes to mind is if if an investor or a VC, you know, another VC is just like giving you a lot of money on an absurd valuation as a founder, should you take that much or not? I always wrap raise around request. So to me, I would only ever raise what I need to achieve the next milestone. So what will unlock? So so raises in the early stage, the pre-seed seed or whatever you want to call them, tend to be, um, for me, milestone driven or mission driven. Uh, my definition of mission is an achievable thing. So a milestone, a big milestone, and they tend to be wrapped about around a, you know a, the next raise. So I want to. If I'm a seed, I want to achieve series. I want to achieve a really substantial series A, which in my world is about £200,000 a month in, in SaaS revenue and a really healthy pipeline, a fat pipeline of SQLs, MQLs, all the way down to, you know, ch- almost chomping at the bit, waiting to become a client. I- I've lost my train of thought. Blimey, it's been, it's been a long day. So that, I think the... Yeah, the question was: Should should should, should uh, as as a founder, should you take higher valuation rounds or not? Yeah, I, so the if you if you want to achieve a thing to get to the next stage, you shouldn't be doing that by having money shoved down your throat by a VC or any investor. You should always raise what you need, which is that that piece that I just mentioned. And the, what I tend to do is, if you think you need, I don't know, whatever, eighteen months and a million pounds, then just just add 50%, it's, you know, whatever, 24 and a million and a half. Give yourself a bit of breathing space, but not much. So don't raise it crazy, crazy, because that would just bite you in the ass at the next round. You want to do a flat or a down round, and that's miserable. So just raise what you need. Don't give too much away. Raise what you need to achieve the thing, but give yourself a little bit of wiggle room because you will mess it up. And that's okay. That's normal. That's learning. That's that They're valuable lessons, but you haven't hit the metrics. So I... So no, I wouldn't take crazy money, crazy valuation, crazy quantum. Don't don't take too much cash, and don't take too much cash at, at crazy valuations. It's it, it will kill you. Too much money will kill you, just as easy as too little. Okay, uh, thanks, Anne. Appreciate the time. Loved it, uh, and thank you so much for the candor. Thank you so much for you know opening up and sharing all these things with us. All all of the goodness. All a pleasure. <laughs>